You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Let's do that together. Uh, text this morning is Revelation chapter 13. And I'll invite you to turn there. Uh, and I'll read this passage and you can follow along if you're interested and willing. And uh, we'll try to make some sense of this supremely interesting passage. <laughs> Revelation 13, 1 through 18. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his, and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Then the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. This is the word of the Lord. Give thanks to God for it. And uh, we better pray again and ask for help now as we could dive in. <laughs> Lord, you're so good to give us your son. He who didn't spare his own son for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And Lord, you're so generous. You're so giving far more giving than we could possibly comprehend. Like a, like a dad scanning the horizon, looking for his wayward son to return home, ready to kill a fattened calf. Lord, we love you. 
We're grateful that you are such a generous God, and we pray now that you would, out of your bounty, that you would pour out more on us. Lord, may the promises of Malachi, Lord, throwing open the floodgates of heaven, pouring out so much wealth, we don't have room to contain it all. Lord, would that come true now in the opening of your word? As your people hear it, would you bless us? Would you give us spiritual strength and endurance for the days and weeks ahead? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For most of us, uh, Revelation is probably a book of puzzling mysteries, uh, strange prophecies, terrifying future scenarios. Many people find in it startling. Thank you. Sorry about that. Many people find in it startling, eerie similarities with our own times. And we pour over it breathlessly, finding fulfillments of it in our news, in the European Union, and COVID vaccines, and major political figures. I can tell you in my experience as a pastor that uh, it seems like many Christians' response to the book of Revelation is one of anxiety and fear. And what I want to do this morning is to help us read Revelation 13 and maybe see it through, maybe not a slightly different interpretive grid for you, but but, but possibly. Let's see it through a, a, a slightly different interpretive grid and see what happens. What I mean is, what if instead of reading Revelation like it's all about and exclusively about the future, which it certainly has a bearing on, of course, but instead of reading it like it's all about the future, what if we tried reading it like it's relevant to us now, and not only to you and to me now, but to all Christians from the time of Jesus' earthly ministry through Human history, the A.D., the years of you know, uh, the years of this this timeline that we're in up till now. What if instead of painting hyper detailed, pixel perfect portraits of future events, John's visions are actually painting sort of vivid impressionistic scenes that are intended to produce a visceral response in the reader? What I mean by that is, uh, you, you know, you know about impressionistic painting, right? Uh, that school of art, and I'm not an expert in this by any stretch of the imagination, but that school of art where, where instead of you know, painting a scene as, as realistically as it possibly could be painted, and there are hyper-realist painters who paint that with such precision it looks like a photograph, but you know, impressionism rather, instead of doing that, instead uh, it, it uses smudges and blobs and, and, uh, and, and more abstract shapes and coloring and lay, the layout of the picture uh, to rather than sort of have you focus in like with a laser-like precision on, on the details of the painting, rather it's intended for you to sort of step back and take in the whole and have it put an impression in your mind, in your person. And so you've seen Van Gogh probably and, and water lilies or, uh, you know, uh, you know, some of those starry nights, some of those paintings that up close, they're just kind of an indiscernible mishmash of color and detail. But then out, zoom back out and suddenly it takes on a real power, right? What if John's visions, what if the apocalyptic genre he's writing in is, is, is keyed to helping us see biblical truths that way? 
Intending to produce a response in you and me as we read, namely a response of a hatred of evil, of clinging to Jesus and the truth, refusing to compromise with the world. Now, I'm not going to be super dogmatic about this interpretive take, by the way. I'm not going to try to convince you of it either. Uh, You know, that's a discussion for a different time. What I'm just hoping to do now, I'm honestly just going to be happy if you don't drive me out of the building. Um, (laughs) You know, what what kind of lunatic preaches on Revelation when he's invited to come speak at a church. It's madness. But um, what I want to try to help help us see is if we see it through this lens, then it it suddenly becomes God's Word and Revelation becomes vital and encouraging and supremely relevant rather than sort of distant and impenetrably strange. Because what I think Revelation 13 intends us to learn is that in this church age that you and I are living in, God allows the devil, he allows the dragon of chapter 12 to use twin instruments of the state, namely authorities with political power, and then religious and economic institutions, on the other hand, to harass and marginalize Christians. And so the message to us is then, recognize those instruments of the dragon. Recognize them when they're at work in your life and in the life of the church around us, and then be encouraged to persevere through that. That, to me, as I read Revelation from the very first chapter of Revelation to the end is the overriding message of the whole book, which is you, stuff is going to stink, right? Like the dragon has been thrown down to earth. He now makes war on the saints. That's the, just part and parcel of living as uh, a follower of the crucified one in this day and age uh, of, of the age of the church between the times of Jesus' first and second comings. And, and so the message for us is fear not, hold fast, cling to Jesus, don't give up even when they kill you. There are monsters at work against us and we should not only recognize and expect that but be encouraged to persevere in a life of radical loyalty to Jesus. And so, um, so bear with me, I'm just going to try to set the stage a little bit and, and try to tease out then what, what the impression Revelation 13 is intended to give us. Uh, if you look back at chapter 12, chapter 12 is a just a jaw-dropping chapter of the Bible, and I love it, and I hope you love it too, or will grow to love it. In chapter 12, there's this vision uh, that, that it seems plain that chapter 12 can't be referring to something that's yet in our future. Uh, it, it seems like it's re- there's this wild vision of a woman giving birth to a male child who's to rule the nations, uh, but... Uh, <clears throat> But the, the, a great red dragon is there, right there at his birth. He wants to devour the child. But instead, the child is caught up to God in his throne. And the woman flees into the wilderness. This is chapter 12, verse 6. The woman flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. And she's to be nourished for 1260 days. And then the rest of chapter 12 describes how uh, a war arose in heaven. Uh, and, uh, and the angels of God and Michael are fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fight back, but he's defeated. He's thrown down to the earth, and the angels are thrown down with him. And a lot of us, when we read that, we might think of kind of that primordial fall of Satan, right? We might think of uh, what we imagine it to have been like when Satan originally fell from, from <clears throat> you know, being an angel of light. Uh, enjoying the presence and goodness of God. And instead, uh, however, that happened, his heart turning to pure darkness and evil and, uh, and, and, and kind of raising a ruckus. Uh, but if you read further, <clears throat> it seems plain that this isn't actually about that. It's actually about the defeat of Satan when Jesus died and rose again. Because look what it says. Um, verse 9 says, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, 
<clears throat> excuse me, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with him. Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth, and see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. In other words, how, did the, how, how is the dragon thrown down? How do those who prevail against him, how do they, how do they in, ensure such victory? Well, it says, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, right? And so what, what I think this is describing is, namely, in the ministry, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, remember Jesus told his followers, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Therefore, you now have authority over snakes and scorpions, and, and you can go forth and cast out demons uh, in, in Jesus' name because, um, because he's seen the, the defeat, the, the defeat of, of, his, of, of that great enemy. And it says, they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And what is he no longer able to do? He's no longer able to accuse the brothers, right? The grounds of his being able to accuse you and me has been swept out from under him because Jesus died and rose again on behalf of ruined sinners. And any man or woman or child who puts their faith in Jesus has his blood and righteousness applied to them. And they now live united to him with a new life, one who's been born again. And so the grounds of Satan being able to say, damn them, God, right? That grounds is now swept away because you're found in Christ. And in that sense, Satan is now thrown down to earth and he is, it says, in great wrath. And the rest of chapter 12 goes on. Um, the, the serpent in this image, in this, in this great vision, is, is trying, to, trying to kill the rest of the offspring of the woman, which seems like a composite image of, of God's people of, of, of the Old Testament uh, moving into the New Testament through the birth of, of Jesus. And so her offspring now are the church, those who belong to Jesus. And it says, verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then there's this sort of dramatic pause. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And so other words, in other words, what's, going to, what's about to follow? What about, what's about to follow is, how is this dragon now going to make war on her offspring, on the offspring of this woman? And that's, that's the, that's the, sets the stage for chapter 13, which is going to describe how God goes about making, or sorry, how Satan goes about making war on God and his people now that he can't accuse the saints any longer. Now that that grounds has been stripped away from him, he does this, we see in chapter 13, by summoning forth two agents, two beasts, two monsters, which together with this dragon, which, with Satan, form a sort of unholy trinity that parodies the triune God. It parodies his work. It even parodies uh, Jesus himself and the Holy Spirit. Um, so if you look at chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, we see this first beast. He rises out of the sea, ten horns and seven heads, ten diadems, those are crowns on its horns, blasphemous names on its heads, and 
It says in verse 2 that it was uh, like a leopard. Uh, just this imagery gives you, it gives you the impression that we're not supposed to be taking this, uh, uh, you know, literally to the very letter as though, I do think I'm reading this literally, by the way. To be, read something literally means to read it according to the genre that it's been written in and interpreted according to those rules. But, um, but, but you know, I don't I think the rules of this, this type of literature would tell us uh, as we read that it's, it's like a leopard, its feet are like a bear's, its mouth is like a lion's mouth, it has horns and heads. Uh, it's not really, you know, even, even able to be visualized in, in sort of a meaningful sense. I think the point is that it has all this sort of power, and these are all allusions to some of the, some of the beasts of Daniel, chapter 7. Uh, and, and so it's tying this back to sort of the great enemies of God's people found in Daniel, chapter 7, and other places. Um, and so it rises out of the sea, and, uh, and, and um, it has uh, horns and heads like, like the dragon does. Chapter 12, verse 3 said that dragon also had uh, ten horns and seven heads. And it operates with this dragon with Satan's power and authority and ambition to rule. And so I think what this is describing is sort of a trans-historical uh, reality of Satan's power against God's people, namely in the institutional power of, of evil that's going to use the state, that uses human government to deceive non-believers and to hurt God's people. Because in verses 3 and 4, it says, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. The whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he'd given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And then it goes on. And it says, verse 7, It was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will, will worship it, except those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, in the, in the Left Behind series and sort of, uh, you know, pop discussions of Revelation, this beast is sort of like an individual future furor of sorts who is going to be wounded or die. I think, isn't his name like Nikolai Carpathia or something in, in the Left Behind series? I haven't read those books. I've read enough of them and about them to, to kind of know the gist, but... Um, and I, don't, I don't intend any disrespect, by the way, to, to that viewpoint either, um, but, you know, it, it sort of envisions a future uh, charismatic leader who's going to be wounded or he'll die, but he'll miraculously recover. It will cause the whole world to kind of go gaga over him. Uh, but John draws on the contemporary climate of his day and on Roman pop culture about the Emperor Nero now to paint a picture of this beast who's a sort of a parody of Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, so John's readers, <clears throat> whether you take an early date of the writing of Revelation and sometime before A.D. 70 or a late date sometime in the, in the 90s A.D., uh, they would have all been familiar with kind of the, the popular conception of the Roman Emperor Nero. He reigned from uh, 54 to 68, so just a couple of, uh, of decades after the resurrection of Jesus. And Nero was something of a, of a beast himself. He um, divorced his first wife and had her executed. He blamed the great fire in Rome on Christians. He persecuted them bitterly. He ordered his own mother to be executed. He kicked another wife to death who was pregnant at the time. He had a young boy named Sporus castrated, and then he married him. Um, he was so, so positively evil that he was referred to as a beast in his own day by secular writers. Uh, the same word that, that John uses here in this vision of him to 
to describe uh, the, the beast that rises out of the sea. He was sort of the supreme embodiment of hostility to Christianity and to Christians, having them, you know, according to record, torn apart by wild dogs, crucified, and even perhaps lit on fire uh, as light for dinner parties. And then in AD 68, so two years before the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman Empire, Nero committed suicide with a dagger to the neck. After the Roman Senate had, had finally had enough of his antics, they declared him an enemy of Rome. And notice, this is sort of like a mortal wound, mortal wound to the head. Uh, and with his death came some sort of dramatic resurrections, because one was that the very future and status of the Roman Empire was kind of called into question after he died. There was uncertainty for about a year during the transition until the next emperor sort of took over decisively. Um, uh, and, and the Roman Empire thus seemed to sort of be revived from having suffered a mortal blow, the loss of its emperor. But the other resurrection uh, that's sort of at work here is that there were many who refused to believe Nero had died. He was so charismatic, he had such kind of a, a populist hold over the people that uh, lots of folks uh, either refused to believe that he died or that he really was going to rise from the dead and retake the Roman glory uh, as, as the legitimate emperor. Uh, and so several imposters arose. Um, by the 80s AD, there was a legend that he was planning to retake his throne. And there were, uh, there were several imposters that claimed to be Nero. One, this is mind-blowing to me, one even almost succeeded in taking control of the empire until the legitimate emperor finally ended it. And this become known, became known in history uh, by the Latin phrase, the Nero redivivus myth, namely that Nero uh, was going to come back to life and sort of seize power again and reign, reign Rome in all his bloody glory. And so what am I saying? That John's writing exclusively about Nero? Well, no, not, not necessarily exclusively about Nero, but that he is uh, in God's uh, divine uh, inspiring of these visions to, to John, he is using that, uh, that conception of Nero, people's conception about Nero, the way that John's initial readers would have understood it in this vision to draw a bigger picture that's relevant for not just his first readers but for the whole age of the church. Namely that in his evil, twisted work, Satan actually kind of parodies what God has done. You remember Jesus is the lamb who was seen standing as slain, one who was, uh, as he had suffered a mortal wound, and this beast now has a head which it says seemed to have a mortal wound. Satan was defeated at the cross, his head was crushed, he was decisively conquered when Jesus died, and yet to the world, he and his empire seem like they're miraculously recovered, right? He's still deceiving, he's gone off, according to chapter 12, he's gone off to make war on the saints, he's standing on the sand of the sea, he's summoning forth these great beasts out of the land and sea to make war on the saints, and... Um, and, and so, to the world, in that perspective, it looks like he's still, he's persecuting, he's mangling God's good creation, he's insulting the work of Jesus, and with this beast from the sea, parody is, Satan's actually parodying the resurrection of Christ himself, and the worship that he receives is sort of a parody of the worship of Christ. That's all Satan can know how to do, really, is to take what God does and then mock it, or make fun of it, or, or try to twist it and obliterate it into, so that it's unrecognized. But of course, we cling to Jesus, the one who, whom is the, is the type uh, and the anti-type even of uh, all the promises of God throughout the scriptures. 
We see in chapter, five, in chapter 13, verses 5 through 7, this beast is sort of a picture of the whole Roman imperial cult in general. And John might have had in mind the godlike status that emperors demanded uh, when, they, when they ascended to the throne. It says that he, this beast has haughty and blasphemous words that recalls how they were addressed as Lord or Son of God or Savior. The emperor Domitian, who reigned about 13 years after Nero, demanded he be called, again in Latin, uh, I don't know if I'm saying this right, by the way, but Dominus et Deus. Uh, Lord and God. He demanded that people call him that. And so this beast is sort of a composite of all the rulers and empires that have opposed God, opposed God's people, and then drawing on all this imagery from Daniel, from the book of Job, we didn't get into that, from the Roman Empire, from Nero. And this beast from the sea, uh, as I'm in this sort of interpretive scheme, then becomes sort of any human political institution insofar as it opposing God, opposes God and his people. It says that the beast blasphemes God's name and God's dwelling. That's literally his, his tabernacle, which the saints themselves corporately are as the dwelling place of God in the New Testament. And this beast, it says, is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Uh, which is, could be even physical assault on believers. And so what John and the Holy Spirit reveal to us, to you and to me, is that we must know and expect that we, as alien residents in this world, uh, are going to be assaulted and oppressed as Satan uses human rulers and governments to deceive the world and to hurt the church. And then in verses 8 through 10, there's something of an interlude. This is really interesting to me. In verses 8 through 10, the direction of the text changes really abruptly, right? It suddenly turns to address the reader, specifically us. John now calls Christians, those whose names are written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, and he moves to full-on exhortation mode. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. We've heard that lots of times. If you're familiar with the the first chapters of Revelation, you're familiar with that that phrase. Uh, Over and over, it's, it's repeated. Uh, to the reader to pay attention to be, what's being said. If you if you're uh, if you genuinely trust Christ, you need to listen to this. That's the refrain of the letters to the seven churches. True Christians heed this. False Christians won't heed this. And so you want to know how Revelation is relevant. What does chapter thirteen mean for us? Well, John's going to spell it out. Hear these strange proverbs. <laughs> Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In other words, he's saying, guys, this is our lot. This is the lot of the church. To be harassed, harried, oppressed, marginalized, put down, persecuted, killed, maligned, mistreated. And fellas, ladies, you need to know this is inevitable. That's part and parcel of living in a world where the dragon is now making war on the, on the children of the woman. And so, you need to decide, John says, by way of this vision. You need to decide right now that you're going to be faithful to the end. Faithful even unto death. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And so it's profoundly relevant to you and to me today Right? Because to recognize the beast means we're ready to endure and believe. That's your part and my part. That's our struggle. That's how we resist. That's how we exist in this world. That's how we approach our dual citizenship. It's kind of ironic that this is getting preached on July 4th, but um, that's how we approach dual citizenship as the full heirs of heaven and yet pilgrims here in this age. 
And so what I think a lot of us miss sometimes in this passage at the level of application, because we want to get speculative. We want to start singling out candidates for the Antichrist in the headlines. Christians, friends, I'm telling you, Christians have been convinced they've identified the Antichrist in every century of the last 2,000 years. Nero was called the Antichrist. Mohammed, the Antichrist. The papacy was identified as the Antichrist. The Congress of Industrial Organizations during the New Deal was singled out as the Antichrist. Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters in each name. Uh, Henry Kissinger. Uh, I'm not joking about this. The, the church has, the church has uh, uh, we have a profound uh, proclivity to identify the, the Antichrist but what I think is even more profound is that John's not sneakily giving a secret code to decipher. He's telling us something really relevant and profound about the nature of satanic evil against us. Something that all his readers from the first century until now would understand. Namely, look, Satan's going to use the state. He's going to use human institutions to murder and harass you. It's going to look awful. It's going to look like he's reborn. It's going to look like he's, back, like he's got all the power he used to when he accused you. It will seem like the whole world is allied against you. It will be very tempting to abandon ship. Be wise and cling to this. Cling to Christ. Stand firm. And now I've, I've you know, I'm probably running out of time to <laughs> flesh out the beast from the earth and his mark, but I'll try to do it um, <laughs> quickly here. The second beast, if you look at verses 11 through 18, We'll get to 666, I promise you. <laughs> uh, um, the second beast is a beast from the land. Right? It rises out of the earth. And it seems like in the imagery here that this is an instrument of Satan to harass us that uses those two intimately parts, those two intimate facets of our lives, namely religion and finances, to tempt and harass and persecute us. We see in verses 11 and 12, this beast rises out of the earth, has two horns like a lamb, spoke like a dragon, exercises all the authority of the first beast, and look what it does. It makes the inhabitants of the earth worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So like it's sort of like a minister of propaganda, right? Like it says, hey everybody, direct your attention to this beast from the sea and worship it, right? This is like Satan's parody of the Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Holy Spirit do? He takes what Jesus said and he draws it to your mind. He takes glory and he directs it to Jesus. He says, everyone look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at how great Jesus is. Look at Jesus and his salvation cast yourself on him and give him glory and honor and praise, right? And so like this beast now is sort of like Satan's perverse, twisted parody of the Holy Spirit and getting people to direct their worship away from God, away from his Christ, instead to the, fall, to the false institutions of authority that Satan capitalizes on to make war on us. And what better way to ensure full participation in idolatry than to strike people where they feel most deeply, namely their wallets, right? It's, it says it performs great signs, it deceives people, wants them to worship an image of the beast, verse 14. It's allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, um, and um, it, it slays those who won't worship the image of the beast. And then verse 16, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forward, so, so that no one, verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of his name. And so it's going to use religion and finances to try to, to try to twist our worship, to try to twist the worship of the world toward Satan and toward his minions. In Asia Minor, uh, the region of the Roman Empire that John was writing to, the region of those churches, there was a council called the Commune of Asia. 
that represented the major cities of that province, and it had a president called the Asiarch. And to promote, it's sort of like a sort of like a chamber of commerce, I think, for the whole that whole region of Asia Minor. And uh, to promote economic vibrancy and the unity of the region, this group, the the Commune of Asia demanded participation in emperor worship by all the citizens of Asia Minor. And they sort of bound this region together with this common religious vision by force. They said, uh, so what they would do is they would establish these trade guilds in all the cities of Asia Minor and other financial groups that citizens would need to belong to in their cities if they were going to be included in the transaction of goods and services. And so they would have these big parades, like the Chamber of Commerce would throw a big parade downtown, and all the businesses are going to be there, and you're going to want to come. They're going to throw out suckers and have trinkets and you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, and so, and so all the businesses, all the trade guilds would kind of gang up and be there, and they would celebrate religious worship of the emperor together. And if you didn't participate in these homages to the emperors as gods, uh, you were excluded from the economic life of your city. You were kicked out of the trade guild because they're trying to bind everybody together with this sort of common vision of religious and financial uh, unity, namely around the worship of, of the Roman emperor. And so John's vision draws on this, what would have been a common experience for his first readers, draws on this experience as he describes this beast marking everybody so that they'll be allowed to buy and sell. In order to expedite its coercion of humanity, the beast from the land we see issues, I don't know, platinum plus rewards cards or whatever. It makes everybody get its mark, right? What is the mark of the beast? (laughs) Well, I don't know, you know, with 100% certainty about this, <laughs> but I do know this. Marking is a big deal in Revelation, up to this point even. Marking has already been a big deal in Revelation. So in chapter 3, verse 12 of Revelation, writing to uh, the church of Philadelphia, it says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. This is Jesus speaking. And my own new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, the one who perseveres, the follower of Jesus, who perseveres to the end through this intense pressure to jettison your faith, says Jesus has that person marked, the very name of God, and the new Jerusalem in his own name. Or um, chapter 9, verse 4, it says, Those who belong to God have the seal of God on their foreheads and are thus protected from Satan's deception. In verses 3 through 8 of chapter 7, it says the saints are sealed on their foreheads. This is something going on. This isn't a literal, like, impression in your flesh. This is a spiritual sign of ownership that you belong to God if you put your faith in Jesus. In other words, I don't think John's describing physical marks, tattoos, brands, microchips, ID cards, QR codes, vaccines. I think he's describing a spiritual stamp of ownership, namely that one is identified with and set apart for God or for his enemies, for the devil. And the devil, again, parodies God's ways and he stamps his own with the name of the beast or the number of his name. 
number of his name is 666. It's rich with symbolism, right? If you read the, read the Bible, read the Old Testament, you know some numbers really stand out. The number three is really important in the Bible. Number seven is really important in the Bible. It seems to indicate completion, perfection. You think of the days of creation and all that sort of thing. Uh, the number 10 is important. The number 12 is important. But seven, kind of a pivotal number. Even earlier in Revelation, the number seven has a lot of importance. And, and so the number six is just one shy of seven. It's sort of like almost completion, but no. It's not quite there. It's incompleteness. It's imperfection. And so it invites sort of a, a, sort of a triple imperfection. To say it, repeat it three times, 666, is sort of like this is ultimate imperfection. Uh, complete incompletion, or however you want to say that. And uh, it sort of invites a specific identity, doesn't it? And so in the year 1260, a guy named Joachim and his followers calculated 42 generations and 30 years each, uh, to each generation, to make the end of the world happen in 1260. And they happened to find that the active Pope of the day, Pope Benedict XI, in Greek letters, if you gave numerical values to the Greek letters of his name, it added up to 666. Some in the Protestant Reformation gave numerical values to the Pope's Latin title, and of course found 666. If you let A equal 100, B equal 101, and so on and so forth through the English alphabet, the name Hitler adds up to 666. If you let A equal 6 and B equal 12 and so on, uh, the word computer adds up to 666. (laughs) Barcodes were introduced in 1973. They famously have three sort of guard lines uh, uh, throughout the code, each with six values. 666. The inventor of the barcode, George Lahr, has six letters in all three of his names. Uh, the word cute purple dinosaur, the phrase cute purple dinosaur, if you change U to V and you extract all the Roman numerals, you get 666, right? So the problem is that it's, e- it's easy to figure out the number if you already know what the name meant, but if you're just starting with the number, it could be almost anybody. What would have John's first readers thought? I don't know for sure, but I suspect they would have thought of Nero Caesar. Maybe in Hebrew. Hebrew famously doesn't have, you know, individual symbols for its, its numbers. and it uses just the letters of its alphabet uh, for numerical values. And Nero Caesar in Hebrew seems to work out according to the numbers, about 666. Nero is called a beast uh, by contemporaries of his, of his day, uh, which in Greek, according to Greek, Numerical values would add up to 666. This probably would have alerted John's readers as they were confronted with the pressures of their day. Guys, this is Nero all over again. Every new wave of persecution, every new time the commune of Asia said, guys, we're having a parade, (laughs) better be there. We reminded them, guys, this is just Nero all over again. The churches that John was writing to were plagued by false teachers who were denying the uniqueness of Jesus. They were urging Christians that it wasn't all that bad to fall in line with the empire's religious religious mandates. And so John, in order to urge his readers and to urge you and me to stay faithful, even when the whole world around us is going nuts about the state or some messianic national leader or whatever pop savior is being presented to us, John is pulling back the curtain to show us this is the orchestration, orchestration of Satan all over again. And we're, we're just, as human beings, we're, just, we're suckers for those charismatic leaders, right? 
Kim Jong-il, the second supreme leader of North Korea, he died in 2011. But according to official state propaganda in North Korea, you can read this all, you know, freely. Um, According to official state propaganda, when Kim Jong-il was born, a new star appeared in the night sky. The first time that he picked up a golf club, which was in 1994, he shot a 38 under par on North Korea's only golf course, including 11 holes in one, and he promptly gave up the sport. Um, He has the ability, or had the ability when he was alive, to alter the weather simply by the power of thought. Official North Korean biography stated that he learned to walk at three weeks of age. He was talking at eight weeks of age, that he wrote six full operas in two years, which, quote, all of which are better than any in the history of music. This is according to his official biography. Right? And that kind of thing is how... the. you know, it's, it's like, let's pick, a, let's pick somebody to save us. And, and then let's direct all our worship to him. That's, how, that's, what, that's what these beasts are helping us see, right? That's how Satan works in this age of the church, to, to deflect us away from Jesus toward instead our own security and safety in whatever new pop leader has arised, arisen. Hitler looked like a messiah to many Germans. Stalin seemed like a messiah to many Russians. Whole nations just get swept up in fervor, in nationalistic hope, in hype that becomes increasingly demanding of worship and increasingly deadly for those who won't bow down. And John says in the face of that, no, don't be deceived. This is just Nero all over again. And so in light of this, I think there are some paradigm shifts that could take place in our thinking, our lives. Don't get, friends, don't get sucked in by the beast from the sea and the land. The beast from the sea teaches us not to give up our loyalty to Jesus, even though the state, even though the human government might might persecute us. And if you're expecting the church to get a lot of glory from the world and its political systems, a lot of respect, a lot of traction, don't be deceived. That's probably not the way the kingdom's going to come. The true church probably isn't going to be like that. And if you signed up to follow Jesus, hoping for some kind of therapeutic life enhancement. You signed up for the wrong reasons. It's, um, you know, all the talk in a lot of modern evangelicalism about success and breakthroughs and personal blessings. It's whatever. It's good to think positively. And yet, the, the Revelation reminds us, guys, we're in war. We're in war. And, and our Savior is coming uh, on the clouds of heaven. If there's no cross in Christianity, there's no crown in Christianity. If there's no loss, no suffering, no sacrifice, no endurance in your discipleship, then it's likely you're not following the crucified one. And the beast from the land teaches us that we need to recognize the power of the Antichrist is that of religious deception and economic pressure that's going to impel people to worship idols instead of God. And we need sensitivity to that spiritual deception that just urges conformity to the world, urges conformity to idolatrous powers. In our day and age, we might say secularism is the most insidious religious movement of our time, right? Secularism says spiritual things aren't real or they're not important. And so in in light of that vacuum, the state becomes God. And your only shot at happiness is to get as much pleasure out of this life as possible. And your only real happiness is going to come from being a good consumer and celebrating Prime Day and not losing the sight of Prime Day and and all its true meaning and all that stuff, right? To fit like a cog into the industrial machine, to buy into the idea that stuff and consuming stuff is going to make you and me and all of us truly happy because we don't need God anymore. Find your place. Keep the system going. Follow the dollar. Keep the economy flowing. Whatever you do, don't question it. The beast from the land teaches us, guys, pull back the curtain. Remember again, Jesus has marked you with his name. 
And so, just to wrap this up, um, let's expect opposition. Let's wait patiently, wait for God's vindication, and resolve ourselves, steal ourselves to be those who persevere to the end. Those who endure. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints, John wrote. Wait for God, wait for his victory, wait for his deliverance. I think we need to resist the urge to respond in kind. We need to resist the urge to use the same weapons as the beasts. And that's the basic message of Revelation, I think. When we're conquered, we conquer. Because we share in Jesus' ultimate victory through seeming defeat. So William Cooper wrote that hymn. It goes, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Revelation teaches us that. Revelation teaches us weakness is strength, smallness is bigness, loss is gain, suffering is glory. Martin Luther said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so I'm calling you, I'm calling myself, let's trust our sovereign God in the face of these monsters, in the face of the powers of evil, in the face of all our setbacks, and let's cling to the one who clung to a cross to save us. Let me pray for you. Lord, I just ask for encouragement for these dear brothers and sisters, for this band of saints, this outpost of heaven here in Sioux Falls. There are many such outposts throughout Sioux Falls, throughout the world. Lord, I pray for your strength to come over and fall on each one of them and on me. Lord, help us. Oh, please help us. There's so many things, so many things trying to suck us away from our gaze on Jesus. God, help us to see those things for what they really are. Deception, idolatry. Lord, help us not to give worship to anything other than Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray now for your encouragement and for your strength for these dear friends, for these brothers and sisters, and for me. In Jesus' name, amen.